The information provided by Monroe Partners is general information and is for educational purposes only. The podcast is not intended to include or constitute as financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from a licensed professional advisor before making any investment decision. The views held by Munro Partners are current at the time of recording and are subject to change. Information about the Munro Funds is available at munropartners.com.au. Munro Partners is a corporate authorised representative of Munro Asset Management Limited, AFSL 480509. Hello and welcome back to the Invest in the Journey podcast for 2023. We are thrilled to be back after the festive season and kicking off season two with Michael Root, Monroe's Responsible Investment Manager and our ESG series. A short series on how we view ESG here at Monroe Partners. Mike, welcome back. It's great to have you back in the office and back in the hot seat. How was your holidays? Thanks, Taylor. It's good to be back. Yes, my holidays were quite good. Um, quick highlight, I, I managed to see dolphins in the wild for the first time uh, at... Uh, at Rye when we were swimming with the kids. So wow, quite an experience and very surprising because I'd never seen dolphins before. And Who would have thought down at Rye? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And very close, you know, obviously we wasn't swimming that far out with a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. That is very cool. So diving right in, given that you are a responsible investment manager, I want to hear from you in your own words how you would define ESG. Yes. So it's not an not as easy a question as it may seem. So I'll start with the very simple. So ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. So then the next question people should ask is environmental, social and governance what? And the answer to that is I think issues, risks, opportunities, you know, that sort of thing. So what ESG and especially ESG integration, you know, what that means is in the investment decision-making process, how do you think about and incorporate these sorts of issues, issues like climate change on the east side, issues like human rights and safety on the S side, issues like uh, board composition, remuneration on the G or governance side. How do you actually incorporate all of that into the decisions that you're making around which companies to invest in and, and, and so forth in the portfolio uh, construction uh, process? Fantastic summary. You have been on the podcast a couple of times and investors probably would have seen you on a few of our webinars. So people are getting to know you quite well, but something that people probably don't know about you is that you also lecture at Melbourne Uni. Can you tell us a bit about what you teach? Yes. So one of the things that, b- before I explain that, to explain why it ha- kind of came to be is I really, throughout my entire six years of uni, had pretty much no exposure to ESG as a topic or even, you know, many of the underlying issues, especially during my commerce degree. Responsible investment didn't really exist. No, it didn't really mm. exist. And, and I guess, uh, you know, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later on as well, but it didn't really exist. And I sort of felt that now after kind of gaining nine, 10 plus years of experience in the industry, I actually approached one of my former lecturers, one of my professors to say, what are you guys doing on this? You know, maybe I can be involved in some small way. And essentially he told me that a friend of mine who's also working in ESG was also, had also just approached him on something very, um, very similar. And so you know, naturally we kind of came together and long story short, we now lecture, it's a 12-week subject, but um, Claire, Claire Heaps is her name. Claire and I lecture together five weeks of the subject together. And so what we, what we outline is what we just talked about, you know, what is ESG, 
how does it differ to ethical investing or uh, impact investing, which we sort of just briefly touch on. And then also digging into some of the underlying issues. So how do investors think about climate change? How do we think about human rights? What are some of the tools, the practical sort of tools that you can use to, to think about this stuff? So that's, that's the course and, 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 and what it teaches and how it came about. I suppose you know, one of the things I'm keen to mention, which is one of the things I'm most proud of, is you know, some of the students that have come through. So Some of our very own. Some of our very own indeed. So before I actually got this job, the first year when I was lecturing uh, this subject and as I was preparing for my interviews at Monroe Partners I looked at the website which had the team and I noticed a name that looked quite familiar and it turned out that it was um, Hayden one of our um, senior analysts and partners uh, here at Monroe Partners he was actually doing the subject as part of his um, master's so he was my you know I I taught him everything he knows about ESG (laughs) of course and I'm very that was yeah that was an interesting sort of uh, coincidence and I've also managed actually in that same cohort, one of the students I thought, you know, she was really brilliant and my former employer, uh, AXI, the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, they were looking for an analyst so I suggested Christine uh, to to them and they ended up hiring her as well. So, uh, you know, these are I think really good opportunities, I think both for the firms because really there's a lack of talent and people who understand what is still such a new area but, but clearly, you know, a good opportunity for hopefully me to sort of use whatever small influence I have to just pair people together in, in roles that are hopefully um, good for both parties. Setting up the next generation. Absolutely. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. It's probably a good segue into my next question. So it does feel like ESG is now at the, the forefront of investors' minds. And you helped me find this stat um, that, for example, the PRI represents investors who focus on ESG recently passed 120 trillion AUM. So why are investors, quote unquote, suddenly in, uh, interested in ESG? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really good question. I think there's multiple aspects to it. I think, you know, first of all, just to backtrack briefly, I think some parts of ESG have been around for a very long time. So in particular, the G, which is quite distinct from the E and the S. So the G is around governance. So things like how a board is run, how uh, remuneration is done for the management team, those sorts of issues. They've been around for a long time, but I think that the environmental and social issues have been perhaps less prominent in the past and it's all kind of come together in this acronym that's then carrying on and, and gathering its own steam. So I'll probably point to three reasons why I think it's become more prominent uh, today. The first, I think that the evidence for it actually enhancing investment returns is getting stronger and stronger. And I think more and more investors are understanding You know what we understand, which is that if you do this and you do this well, you can actually improve your, your the performance of the portfolios and of the funds uh, over over the long term. The second reason is I think the clients increasingly demand it. So as the generations change from from a individual client perspective, people uh, want to invest their money that where they can understand that that's aligned with their values, whether it be on something like climate change or on issues like human rights. And equally from institutional investors as well, you know, they're demanding that their asset managers also take these issues into account. The third reason is regulation. So for a long time, you know, through most of my 10 plus years of ESG, looking at ESG, it was a really sort of a regulation-free zone. It was a lot of sort of self-regulation and those sorts of things, especially in Australia. But we've seen, I think, starting in, the, in Europe and then into the US and into Australia as well, more and more regulation including on investors, you know, pushing them to, A, into integrate this sort of thinking into their analysis, 
and also when they do so, making sure that they're doing so in a you know in an honest way and avoiding what what's you know commonly called greenwashing, where you're sort of making exaggerated claims about you know what your product does and doesn't do. They're fantastic. You joined Monroe in November of 2021. How has ESG been integrated into the investment process before you and then also after you? Yeah, so I think it's, first of all, it's important to say that Monroe took, has taken ESG into account since the very beginning and really into the previous history of the members of the team, you know, Nick and others that worked together before. So I guess just to step back, we have five factors. Previously, we had five factors which, take, which we consider when making investment decisions. So we look at various financial characteristics, but then one of the others that we have always looked at is something called control. And ESG was built within that. So control is around uh, looking at the alignment of the management with the shareholders. So that in itself is sort of an ESG kind of a governance type of topic. And then we had previously integrated ESG into that process as well. We also previously and continue to look at customer perception, which includes ESG factors. So for example, we invest in Lululemon. It's a company which has a very socially conscious customer base. Therefore, the customer perception of Lululemon depends on how the company actually manages its um, ESG issues. So those two factors were there previously. I think the main change that's happened since I've joined is that we've essentially split out the ESG from the, from control. So we've created a, not created, but we've sort of split it out into a sixth uh, factor. So ESG is now a distinct factor from control. So we look at those two things now uh, separately. I think more importantly, though, is that we look at ESG ourselves. So there are many data providers that can say, you know, you punch in a company and it gives you a number and it says you know, the ESG risk of I don't know, Tesla is medium or high, whatever it is. We're now looking at it on a issue by issue basis. So we say, first of all, we say, what are the things for Tesla that are relevant? And we note those down and then we analyze them sort of line by line, issue by issue. So that's the, the sort of the main difference that brought in in the last year. And it's really been a, a whole team effort, which I'm sure we'll touch on. You know, some of the benefits really of doing that is that you start to understand things, again, on a, on a deeper level, on a more issue-by-issue issue level. You're also able to adapt to new information more quickly because you're not waiting for some third-party provider to give you a new score when something happens. You can just change it yourself. And, you know, we look at a very, I guess, small number of companies in a lot more detail so we, we can actually uh, do that. The third thing is that it in- enables uh, engagement with those companies. So if you know the underlying issues when the management of the company you know, comes into the office and wants to talk to us, we can actually use our influence in a much more effective way because we've done the work around understanding what the issues are which are relevant for that company. It's incredibly nuanced and very dynamic. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying. You know, we're trying. You know, we've got the framework in place now. We've, we've done the first round of uh, scores really through the last year and something that we can continue to sort of build on and improve as time goes on. So I'd like to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier and kind of ask a reverse question and does responsible investing and ESG reduce investment returns? Yeah, yeah. So so this is a common misconception. A com- misconception, exactly. I think misconception is the right word. I think when you look at ESG integration, which is just simply saying we're, we're on audio only here, but I'm drawing a big circle in front of my, myself. So imagine like the, the big circle full of risks and opportunities and issues that are relevant to a company. Within that large circle, there's a smaller circle, which is the ESG issues, which are potentially relevant to the company. The only assumption really that you're making when you're uh, integrating ESG is these issues are also essentially important. So that's the sort of the the philosophical basis for why ESG integration 
should add to your investment returns. There's also now the ac- academic evidence to back that up. So if you look, if you Google a, a paper by Freed and, and others, it's called, it's a meta-analysis essentially of papers around ESG. So there's over 2,000 papers that they look at which compare, which look at a company's ESG performance on the one hand and then their financial performance on the other hand. And what they find is in the majority of the studies that look at these issues, there's a positive correlation. So the companies that perform better on ESG also perform better in terms of their financial um, performance. I think where ESG potentially or where some of these issues potentially can reduce investment returns is in exclusions. So some investors, you know, historically especially have taken the approach of saying, we don't like this particular activity, we won't invest in that at all. And so if you, if, you know, the theory says that if you exclude a whole set of companies from your investable universe, you reduce diversification and obviously, you know, investments are all about diversification. The other thing that you obviously lose is the ability to actually impact and influence those companies. So on the exclusions, we, we do have some exclusions, but it's a very small part of you know, what we do around ESG here at Monroe Partners. It's really about the integration, which is where we believe, and there's a lot of evidence now to, sh- to support that the idea that it actually adds to performance. So you also mentioned... Uh, how the investment process has has changed since you joined, and you also have made some other impacts uh, since you you joined in the fourteen months ago. Are there any changes that you're particularly proud of? Probably what I'm most proud of is really the team's effort at embracing the new process around how we actually view and assess companies on ESG. So the the framework that we, that I described earlier around looking at each company individually and then within that looking at each indi- issue individually. It actually does take quite a lot of time. And so, you know, for, each, for every company, it's probably you know, half a day to a day of, of analyst work to actually do that. So what I'm most proud of is the fact that we've, gotten, we've, we've done that now and we've managed to, you know, maintain the, you know, you know, relatively comprehensive view of all of our companies uh, at all times. And really that's a credit to the whole team because it's not just me that sort of sits there in a corner doing ESG scores all day. It's really up to our analysts and portfolio managers to, you know, if you're the, you're the stock champion for Amazon, then you're responsible for understanding the ESG issues that are relevant for Amazon. So that's, that's really what I'm most proud of because I think it's very easy and tempting to just take third-party ratings off the shelf and just plug them in and have no idea about how they derived and whether they're any good. But, we, you know, we're really trying to do it ourselves and understand things issue by issue. So there are three examples you know, that, that I had in mind, but just in the interest of time, maybe I'll just share one of them. So we invest quite a lot in companies that are developers of solar solar assets. So they make the modules, they develop the actual solar farms, etc. One of the issues with the solar supply chain is that a lot of the inputs into solar panels come from Xinjiang in China. And probably familiar to many people here, there, you know, there are some serious uh, allegations around human rights violations in Xinjiang in China of the Uyghur minorities. And so when we were doing our analysis of these companies in our portfolio, we noticed, you know, we noticed two things, probably we noticed three things. The first thing is that many of these companies do have exposure to Xinjiang in China because it is such an important part of the supply chain. The second thing is that there are rules in place now around importing material into the US especially and into you know, the risks around forced labour uh, to do with those issues. So if you, you have to basically prove that what you're importing into America doesn't have forced labour in, in its uh, supply chain. 
And the third thing which we noticed was, frankly, that the third-party providers that we were using weren't picking up this issue. So it's a very material issue for the companies because it affects how well, how much they can build, how much they can sell, how, you know, how many projects they can have, how successful they can be at doing all of that. And so I think we, I think we gain an advantage at understanding this issue where we wouldn't have gained that advantage if we were just using the third-party providers. And it also sort of led us to think more deeply about what are the other companies that are trying to navigate the challenges within the supply chain. And so one of the companies that we invested in last year is a company called First Solar. So First Solar has a very different way of manufacturing. They're a solar panel manufacturer, but they've got a very different way of actually building the, the, the modules that doesn't rely on polysilicon, which is where a lot of the issues come from. So you can sort of see that you know doing it ourselves led to this sort of thought process about a real domino effect. Yeah, how can we find? How can we? You know, are there companies that are sort of trying to solve for this particular issue here? And that sort of led to that domino effect of you know, finding that company. So yeah, that's probably an example of one thing I'm quite proud of. I think following on from that, uh, something that I was particularly interested in was that you recently wrote a white paper for us, and it was titled "Investors' Climate Action: Not Just About Portfolio Emissions." Could you provide a high-level summary? Sure. So um, obviously a lot of investors are, these days are concerned about climate change and climate change risk and wanting to integrate that into how they invest and how they think. One of the ways that investors are doing that is through portfolio emissions reduction targets where they basically say, okay, what are the scope one and two emissions of all of the companies in our portfolio? And let's sort of take an average of that and then we'll try to reduce that over time. In a sentence, what the white paper was trying to argue was that this is I guess, probably a necessary component of how investors think through uh, climate change and climate change risk, especially if you're a very large, uh, diversified investor. But it's only one part of the puzzle because and, – and we sort of, I sort of outlined four reasons and sort of another reason as well why that's the case. So maybe just to briefly sort of flesh that out, I'll outline two of the reasons. One of those actually relates to a sector, which is utilities. So if you look just at the operating emissions of utilities, you know, they burn gas, they burn coal. They're actually, as a sector, the higher, you know, account for the highest proportion of the emissions of a, you know, let's say, well-diversified portfolio like the MSCI All Country uh, World Index. But the interesting thing about utilities is that, I mean, A, they're rapidly decarbonizing, and there's technologies you know, such as solar, such as wind, such as nuclear, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, Yes, another episode. Another episode, (laughs) which you're welcome to listen to. There are lots of technologies out there already that can enable utilities to decarbonise. There are also lots of incentives, like through the Inflation Reduction Act, which all of this means that utilities are rapidly decarbonising. So a portfolio emissions measure obviously is looking backwards, and so you're sort of missing where these companies are going to. The other important thing, obviously, about utilities is that if you have a decarbonised grid, then everything else that can be electrified, such as cars can be decarbonised um, if you have a decarbonised grid. So it's just one example of why just looking at portfolio emissions doesn't get you all the way there in terms of understanding these issues. The, the second example I'd point to is one around climate change solutions. And so one example that we talked through in the paper is a company called Waste Management, which you know, collects basically waste or trash and you know, puts it in landfill, recycles it and does a bunch of uh, other things. This company that have trucks driving around all over the place, they have you know, large industrial types of operations, they have a high um, operating emissions uh, just by the nature of the business. 
But again, what that portfolio emissions doesn't capture is what they actually contribute in terms of avoiding emissions. So one thing that they do is that they ca capture the landfill gas, which allows, I think, them overall to basically help avoid more than three times the emissions that they actually emit themselves. And so again, if you're just looking at the operational emissions profile of that company, you completely sort of miss that picture. And there are many other companies, for example, companies that transport thermal coal that have relatively low emissions because they are just operating trains, but are part of that fossil fuel, I guess, ecosystem and therefore probably more exposed to the risks around climate change. And so those are two of the reasons, um, yeah, which I'd outline. And so really, again, the whole point of whole point of it is to sort of say that a low carbon portfolio or a low carbon fund where you just get rid of the high emitting companies is really not the whole solution and it's really not the same thing as a fund which looks actively to invest in companies that are enabling decarbonisation which is again what we're all about here at Monroe Partners. And so is that why it was an important topic for you to write about? Yeah exactly exactly and I think you know more broadly I suppose thinking about it more sort of philosophically as part of the investment community. I think there's a lot that the investment community can do in terms of action uh, around climate change. And I think that just narrowly focusing on portfolio emissions doesn't enable the investors to, first of all, make the biggest impact that they possibly can on the climate change issue. And also, you know, you can miss out essentially on some of these structural trends. So if you're just, you know, if you're very focused on just getting rid of the companies that are high emitting, you wouldn't pick up a company like Waste Management because and, – and therefore you'd miss out on the, you know, the opportunities that it has in terms of capturing and making use of the landfill gas, huge opportunities in terms of recycling, which is also another you know, climate change solution that they offer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think the, those were the reasons why I thought it was important to write that paper. And so ending on a bit of a lighter note, yes. it is January – Yes. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Okay, so I have a New Year's resolution that I've spent a total of five minutes actually achieving so far, which is uh, meditation. So awesome. When I during COVID, when everybody was working from home, I um, actually got quite into meditation. So I would do it probably ten minutes a day, twenty minutes a day, and I think like ESG, it sort of has a bit of a uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about what meditation is and what meditation isn't you know to me meditation is something that's very it's actually quite hard and it's not sort of airy fairy and blissful and all of that it's extremely difficult it's almost like mental gymnastics <laughs> yes exactly so you've tried it before <laughs> I have yes yeah. yeah so when I went back to the office uh last year it just fell out of my routine so I'm really trying to re-establish it yeah so I did it for five minutes yesterday because I knew you'd be asking me <laughs> on this podcast today about whether I've done it and then my um, son woke up from his sleep and interrupted it so I'm five minutes in and you can ask me in my progress. Later I will episodes. be checking in. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you for taking the time out to talk us through all things ESG. My pleasure, Taylor. Thank you very much. Remember to subscribe to be informed of any future episodes of Invest in the Journey and head to our website, monroepartners.com.au to learn more about our ESG policies.